Thank you to Target for sponsoring this episode. Target is committed to using their size, scale, and resources to help heal and create lasting change in Minneapolis and across the country. Up next, Jelani Cobb is an award-winning writer for The New Yorker on issues of race, history, justice, and politics. He also teaches journalism ethics. As a professor of Columbia Journalism School, he describes the worst and laziest kind of journalism and how problematic that can be. He shares with us he's had enough of a survey that he can start making comparisons of similar cases like George Floyd's or Dante Wright's death. Our host, Shonda, also brings light to the importance of discussing women, and particularly Black daughters and their encounters that they're likely to have with police. And lastly, you'll hear personal stories of having to make quick calculations before they consider interacting with police, afraid that an innocent Black man who was trying to help could potentially die in the hands of police. Was that heavy? These are the hard and gritty conversations that needed to be had. Well, let's get right into it. I always go back to a day when I was uh, I was 13 or so, and I was coming from a baseball game. I played um, Little League, and I had uh, a bat, a glove, a uniform on, and uh, two police officers pulled up and said that I fit a description for someone and searched me. And you, know, you think about like baseball literally is like supposedly the most American thing you can do. Uh, and I'm this adolescent and, you know, I'm up against a mailbox being frisked you know, by this cop. And I think that never left me like that feeling um, it never left me. And you have like subsequent interactions that have only kind of confirmed that. And I'm six, three, I stopped growing when I was 15. So I was a six foot three inch 15 year old, which meant that I tended to be treated like an adult early on um, the kind of adultification of black boys and the implications of that in law enforcement, you know, which I'm familiar with. And, you know, one other time when I was a student, by this point at Howard University. And uh, there was a narrow sidewalk, you know, near the campus. Uh, we're walking as a group of us, two of us are on the sidewalk and two of us are walking along the curb because there's not enough space for all of us on the sidewalk. And a police officer pulled over and got out with his hand on his gun and said for us to get the F on the sidewalk. And like those kinds of interactions, I just knew that, you know, my white peers were not having, you know, that this was something that was crucial. And even the conversation before, like now we know that we call it the talk, you know, but my parents, you know, were having that conversation before it was termed as that about how to handle the police and, you know, how to interact. And, you know, my father told me once um, to never take anything from a police officer, never, 
allow them to hand you anything. And it was like, you'll keep your hands at your sides at any, all times. And I was like, why? He was like, because if they hand you something, your fingerprints are now on it. And so, you know, that kind of framing, you know, meant that I had a perspective when we started seeing things like Elnor Bumpers, who was uh, a 70 year old woman who was killed by New York City housing police in 1986 or so. Uh, and, you know, they claimed that she had assaulted them and they shot her with a shotgun. Um, and, you know, all of the kind of cascade of circumstances after that. And so my career in writing about these things has been an outgrowth of those personal experiences. When I've thought about the young people that witnessed George Floyd's death, mm -hmm. I've reflected on some of my experiences, which I've had several very negative experiences with police directly. I also have four sons and a daughter. Mm -hmm. And so the collection of stories that we have in our family, when I start taking them off, just makes me ill. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a piece of me that's just very thankful that we all made it through. But when I think about Darnella Frazier, Darnella Frazier and um, her nine-year-old cousin and the young people that witnessed um, George Floyd's murder, either right there on Chicago Avenue or the many that have witnessed it on that video, um, I have often thought, how is this shaping their future and what responsibility do we have to interrupt and to um, support them in turning that hopefully into activism. Yeah, I'm, I feel conflicted about that because on the one hand, we saw you know what George Floyd's death did. You know, it changed the entire conversation, uh, and you know, that terrible thing, you know, of his daughter saying, you know, that her father would change the world. And he, he did, but in a way that nobody ever would want to change the world, you know? And the video, and, you know, I teach journalism and journalism ethics. And so the video is problematic to me, even though it's, it's easy availability has had this galvanizing effect on these activist movements. It's created a generation of activists. Um, it's going to be a shorthand. We don't even know what the implications of this video will be. Because one of the things that I did, you know, when my various interviews, you know, that I've done and this the historical stuff is just how many of the, the prominent people of the boomer generation were shaped by the, that picture of Emmett Till you know, where uh, uh, Muhammad Ali, you know, talked about seeing it as a child and being shaken by it. You know, Angela Davis talked about it. You're going to go through this whole litany of people of that generation uh, who were all, even to this day, you know, where I was talking uh, with Lonnie Bunch, who's the director of the Smithsonian, uh, and he talked about when he saw the Emmett Till uh, image. And they all were shaped by that in ways that drove them to address the, the circumstances that led to Emmett Till being killed. And I think that hundreds or thousands of young people are going to do that as a result of seeing George Floyd's death. And at the same time, 
there's this principle in photography and photojournalism that we are most comfortable showing the suffering of people who are least connected to us. And so if Derek Chauvin had kept his knee on the throat of a 125 pound blonde white woman until she died, we never would have seen that video. You know, we, we, or if they did, it would have been blurred or they would have taken steps to preserve the dignity and humanity of that person. Uh, but it's like in, in Vietnam, the famous Vietnamese, the famous picture of the Vietnamese um, young man being shot in the head. And you can see the bullet kind of coming out of the other side of his head. We would never have shown that video if it were, I mean, we would never shown that image rather if it had been a Vietnamese soldier shooting an American in the head like that, a white American in the head. And so even as that video of George Floyd's death ignited this whole movement, the mere fact that we saw the video confirmed that he was somebody whose humanity had been in question in the first place. Yeah, it's so emotional. I, I you know, my youngest son, um, when the verdict came out, he was upstairs in our house and I called him down to come watch it and he wouldn't come down. And, you know, I was getting ready to be mom, like mm. you come down here and you watch this. This is a historical moment. And there was a piece of me that says, no, he needs to do this his way. He needs to do this his way. Um, because I realized that he did see George Floyd's humanity and he, he sees it reflected in himself. And he's wrestling with these different messages and I'm doing my very best. I don't know how you erase it time after time, you know, Mike Brown and Tamir Rice and, you know, Dante Wright. Um, when I think about Dante, I think about what happened to Oscar Grant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's similar cases? You know, the thing is that the, the bad thing is that you now have enough of a survey that you can start making comparisons. So, you know, George Floyd's death was like uh, Eric Garner's. You know, these are both men who were complaining they couldn't breathe and they you know, died subsequent to the police actions. Uh, Dante Wright's death was like Oscar Grant's because uh, these are both people, instances in which the police officers said that they were going for their taser, but actually went for their gun. Um, and, you know, we kind of, we could start drawing similarities across place and time. Uh, to these incidents precisely because there are so many of them. And uh, I think that that uh, in itself is kind of numbing and it makes it hard to grapple with this. And also the fact that there's no sign of any decrease. There's no sign. I mean, I have been for 10 years almost writing about these. The first thing that I wrote about for The New Yorker was uh, about Trayvon Martin. And that was in 2012. You know, it's 2021. And if I sat down at my computer right now and said that I was going to write about one of these cases, I would have six or seven of them to choose from. For, um, you touched on the media and showing humanity. You know, I've seen a bit of an evolution, um, at least in my hometown in Minneapolis, in terms of how the media covered this case and it felt like it evolved even over the year. Mm -hmm. And then certainly even after the verdict where uh, people showed, where the media showed the uh, press release that immediately came out 
following um, George Floyd's death that said it was a medical incident. And, you know, I feel like they're questioning things in a different way. Do you do you think that media will evolve to to show these stories in a different way? And do you think it will stay? Yes. But slowly. Um, So my students, you know, in Columbia Journalism School are very clear about this. And we're also, you know, this is part of what comes up in their classes where like the worst, laziest kind of journalism just presumes that the police version of the story is the accurate version of the story. Uh, And there are kind of baked in reasons why people do that. You know, one of which is that everyone is always pressed for time. You're always writing something that's under the gun or broadcasting something that's under the gun. You have five minutes to get the story together. It's easier to get the police report. The police department has a public information officer. Uh, They'll make it easy for you. They have a vested interest in getting their version of the story out there. Uh, And then finding the the alternate versions of that story involve tracking down community members. It's like, oh, you know, so-and-so. Well, I only know his nickname. I don't know his real name. Or, you know, I could just tell you he lives on uh, the north side of town, which is gigantic. You know, like you can't track that person down. Uh, and so it becomes easier. That just is not justifiable. But that's how you wind up with a kind of lazy journalism that uh, takes the official bureaucratic response as the, uh, the, the truthful one. Uh, the fact that George Floyd's uh, medical, I mean, police report uh, listed a medical incident, but did not at all list the fact that he was killed, he was murdered, uh, is evidence of that. If you go back through multiple reports, you can find those kinds of disparities. Um, there's a case in uh, New York uh, City where guards at a, um, a prison watched for 15 minutes while a man hung in his cell uh, and he died. And then they wrote a, just wrote a fake uh, report, a false report of uh, saying that they didn't see him, they didn't know. Uh, and so uh, those sorts of things are, you know, are, are endemic, you know, in journalism. But I think people have begun to see uh, in a broader sense uh, why that's problematic. The other reason, the reason why I'm a little bit skeptical is that, you know, the kind of institutions that media, uh, you know, draw upon, the kind of institution that media tends to be, uh, is very much middle class, middle aged, white and male. And still to this day, and it's from the vantage point of people who fall into that demographic. If you think that it's reasonable, uh, or as I said to an editor once, you know, when we were talking about a number of alarming things that had happened, you know, right after the last presidential election. Uh, I said that, you know, if you're someone who, for whom the institutions in this country have generally worked, you're at a disadvantage covering instances in which those institutions have generally failed. But there are a whole lot of people who are living in a world where the institutions have generally not functioned as they were supposed to. And so you can't tell their stories, at least not presuming that you have some sort of insight. Uh, and so uh, the ability of media to listen and give credibility uh, and recognize the humanity of people in these different uh, you know, positions, that's still something that there's a steep learning curve for. Yeah, the other thing that you touched on is the talk. And I mentioned that I also have a daughter 
And you often hear people say, I have to give my sons the talk. Well, how old were you when you had to have the talk? And Mm -hmm. Um, I think there were two ah ahas that I've had uh, of late. One is that I didn't give my daughter the talk. And um, and I feel some sort of way about that while I'm looking at these stories of these young women that are getting killed and and involved in deadly incidents with police. And then I think the second one is my talk only involved initial engagement. I did not talk to them about if they happen to take you down there. Keep your mouth closed. Right. Like just the rules after which I got. I had a chance to talk to Yusuf Salim after when they see us come out and and looking at the young men and how Ava DuVernay portrayed sort of the interrogation, which I know was was summarized to the actual terror that those young men experienced. Um, And so when I look at sort of all the ways in which parents are trying to protect from a system that is here to protect us. Um, I just want to just give room because we often talk about black men and black boys. But what what are your sort of insights on what's happening right now with the young women? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very funny because, you know, we look at this and all of our communities are affected by all of these things. Um, You know, when we talk about especially when we talk about these disparities um, as they break down along gender. That uh, for all of these young men. Uh, who've been killed, uh, there are wives, their daughters, their mothers, their sisters. You know, we don't have a kind of isolated kind of situation. For these young women who were killed, you know, there are brothers, their fathers, their uh, boyfriends, sons, et cetera. And, like, we don't have a, a kind of neat distinction. Um, and we just say that for all the, the disparities, for the maternal mortality disparity that affects a whole lot of Black men uh, because you know, their fathers to children that no longer have mothers. Uh, and so um, we can't parse that out, but it is important that we talk, you know, to our daughters about the kind of encounters that they are likely to have with police for the reason that you pointed out. And for another reason, which is, you know, disturbing, uh, but true, which is that uh, there is a not insignificant amount of sexual assault uh, that is happening with women at the hands of law enforcement officers is not something that's written a whole lot about. It's not something that's examined a lot, um, but it does happen. Uh, and it's something that people need to be aware of uh, and need to be having much more dialogue about. And so uh, there's that part of it. And you know, and I also think that, um, you know, my daughter, we had uh, my daughter is 20. Well, she'll next week, actually, uh, two weeks, she'll be 29. Uh, and so we had an incident once where um, we were we went for a long walk. We were coming back. This is in Manhattan. Uh, we witnessed a, a couple, both African-American, maybe in their early 20s. Uh, the young man was behaving in a very agitated way. I thought he was about to um, to harm the woman. And that's a calculation. You know, do I intervene? Do I not? Um, like making all kinds of like judgments. I'm looking to see if he has a weapon. It's a summer. So he has on summer clothes. So it's like not very many places that he could hide a weapon. And so I make the calculation, decide that I'm going to intervene. When he's not responding to me, I told my daughter to call the police. And that was a calculation, too, because now and I'm thinking 
I don't want this young man to harm this young woman. My daughter didn't call the police. She did not call the police. Um, and, you know, I, a bus driver who saw the situation got out and the two of us, it was an African-American man who's maybe in his late 50s. The two of us talked some sense or something approaching sense into this young man's head. Um, and I turned around and told the young lady, like, you know, if you have like something, do you need like to get away from him? We can walk with you or whatever. You know, we kind of resolve the situation among ourselves. And she, my daughter said that she was worried that if she called the police, the police would come and shoot me. That is not a calculation that most people have to make. Black people have to make that situation where even if you are trying to prohibit someone from harming someone else, you may be subject because I'm there, because I'm a large man, because I'm trying to intervene, that the police may just come out and start shooting. Yeah, I actually have a similar story, and I, I may have shared this before on the podcast, but um, when I was younger, I thought someone was breaking into my house. And so I was there, my husband and my kids, and I called 911, and I didn't feel comfortable, so I called my daddy, and he lived around the block. I called my dad. Dad, I think someone's in the house. Can you come get me? Come get me, dad. So my dad runs around the block. There was nobody, thankfully, in the house, but we had called the police. So I come out, I see my parents coming. Mm -hmm. So my dad is running around the block. My mom is screaming at me. Why would you do that? Why would you put your dad's life in danger? And I went like a whirlwind. I couldn't figure out what she was mad at. She was so mad at me. You are going to put, you could have got your dad killed. She was no longer worried about who's in my house. She saw me. But she's like, the police are coming and they're going to see him running down the street and they're going to shoot and kill him. That's right. Yeah, I didn't make, I don't know what, I mean, obviously it turned out okay, but I mean, the calculations in an instant that we in community have to make that I'm not sure, um, I think that our community of Minneapolis and, and, and Minnesota are becoming more open to understanding that their reality is not everyone's reality. That's right. And also, I think that one of the problems has been credibility that like the kind of gaslighting that comes with the idea that we've been making this up all along. And it takes something extreme and absurd and disgusting, you know, horrifying for people to go, oh, well, maybe there was some truth to this, Uh, even as some people are still going to say that this is an anomaly or this is kind of an exception. Um, but there's so many stories that in, in order, my, my reaction to the reaction to the film, uh, to the video was irritation because it was kind of like, why did it take this much for people to actually believe that we might've been telling the truth about what our relationship has been to law enforcement for all of this time. And, um, One of the other things, if I could have just kind of a tangent to this, is like, there's always, whenever you bring this up, there's always the, well, what about Black on Black crime? Which is a weird kind of thing to ask. But but it's it's an odd kind of thing because nobody ever asks about the relative rates of white homicide, you know, which are astoundingly high compared to white people in other Western nations. The, you know, the white people in the United States are a pretty violent lot 
as compared to uh, you know, these other groups. No one ever brings up that fact when there's an issue of community concern that affects mostly white people. You know, it's always granted that you have a basis or reason uh, or standing to be able to say that you, you have this particular concern. Uh, and you know, it, whatever happens in some other people who happen to share your skin color has no bearing on your specific concern. Uh, but with black people, we're not people, we're a sociological category. And so it's like, well, what about this? You know, what about that? You know, it's like, if white people are upset about the tax rate, I'm going, what about skin cancer? You know, it's like, these things have nothing to do with what we're talking about. Um, and so you know, there's, there's that kind of dynamic to it. And, and finally, I think that one of the things with policing is that because we have such a fraught, difficult, untrusting relationship with law enforcement, it actually aids and abets the other kinds of violence that happen um, in our communities. You know, that people know that nobody trusts the police, that if they commit a crime, uh, people will be hesitant to call the police, you know, that um, the people have, that the police are, don't have the kinds of networks of connections that can help them track down suspects. Uh, and so in that way, the police violence actually exacerbates the other kinds of community violence that we have to deal with. Yeah, I have like maybe two other questions. And one is that in your interview with the Westminster Town Hall, um, uh, Tim asked you about the caste system. Mm -hmm. And as he asked the question, I was thinking, you know, do you think that the police actually uphold the caste system, which is a little bit of a different framing than how he asked the question. Mm -hmm. But when I think about, because you guys touched on housing a little bit, and um, I had an opportunity to interview Richard Rothstein from The Color of Law last week. And so mm -hmm. he has a chapter on, you know, uh, government sanctioned violence, particularly related to housing, when black families were moving to mm -hmm. the suburbs and the police were coming in and not doing anything about, you know, the crosses burning and all of that other stuff. So do you think policing has upheld a caste system that has become par for the course in a way that we don't recognize it? or haven't recognized it? Sure, sure. I mean, I mean, policing has been the kind of spear's tip of maintaining the, the kind of disparities. But the reason I think that we get so exercised about policing is that it's the least subtle way of maintaining the caste system. You know, it's the, the form that grabs you physically, that throws you on the ground, that, that hits you, that does these kinds of things. Um, and so we recognize that, we can video that. You know, we can send that out on the Internet and get people together for a rally. Uh, the other more equally as the pernicious ways of upholding the caste system are not things that you can show. You know, when the person uh, turns you down for an apartment or turns you down for a job or pays you less than this other person um, is making or uh, you denies you health care or you get a poor quality of health care. Like, none of those things you know, that happen and exacerbate you know, the the kind of caste differentials uh, that we see in American society, you know, are, are none of those things are uh, easily encapsulated on film. Uh, but with policing, we see that most overtly. And that's what we can kind of uh, sink our teeth into. Now, I mean, I have my own kind of particulars about caste and, you know, my arguments, and I don't know um, that it's the best term, you know, for what the situation is, because Caste is a very particular and specific history um, in India. 
um, some of which does not comport to our history here. But, you know, in the broad sense, if we're going to go with just the kind of analogy, then, yeah, I think uh, policing you know, does uphold that system uh, in conjunction with lots of other mechanisms. Yeah. And I think you touched on my last question, which um, was really about sort of the tensions that we've seen around policing. Is it symbolic of basically overall race relations and what's happening in every other system that we interact with? And how and how do we help? How do I help in philanthropy and, and more broadly people to translate that this this sort of racial tension exists in those systems, if you believe that, but that it just manifests differently, uh, but that the stories are still being told and we're just not believing them. Yeah, I, I think that. Um... It's a kind of both and thing like we have to uh, attempt to reform our police departments. But what we really have to do is work to uproot inequality, you know, because, you know, before George Floyd Floyd died uh, at the hands of Derek Chauvin, he was unemployed. And he was a person infected with COVID-19. And what we saw in 2020 was really a stripping away of the facades in society. You know, we saw exactly who could not get out of the way of that virus and who could. Uh, we saw exactly who was more likely to lose their job and who was not. And then we saw the uh, exactly who was more likely to die if they did get infected uh, with COVID-19, all those things correlated to what we know roughly is the categories of the racial hierarchy in the United States. Uh, and then in the midst of that, he was killed by a white police officer. If we want to address policing, we're going to have to address all of it. We're going to have to address education. When someone says that I'm uh, fighting against police brutality, uh, I'm trying to get more funding for education, those two things are not contradictory. The person says we, we need to deal with the health disparities. The person says, in short, that we actually want to have uh, the kind of society that we purport to be and that policing is one component of it. And I worry that uh, in addressing policing, we think that, you know, because that's gotten a great deal of attention, realistically and rightfully, uh, we think that that has been the barometer by which we'll measure uh, equality in our society. And it's just one of them. I guess the last thing is I'm going to go to uh, Hope. And again, in the last uh, conversation you had with Westminster, they talked about a quote from Eddie Glaude Jr. And I also had a chance to, to speak with him. What captured me on the day of the Floyd uh, verdict was Van Jones, who said, I woke up this morning afraid to hope. And I heard that and I said, you know, bro, like I, I felt I felt that with my whole body when he said that, because there's no reason that I actually felt that the verdict wouldn't be the same because of all of the things that converged on this case. Right. I expected that. But I was afraid to hope for it. And there was just like this huge relief. And I, I just want to leave and just um, as we conclude this conversation to just kind of gauge your level of hopefulness. You have a different point of view. You get to see things national and more intimately than I have uh, across the country. Are you feeling hopeful that we're on the right path? I think I'm hopeful that 
in the energy that the young people are bringing to this fight. And I'm hopeful in the results that activists and people in the street and people in everyday regular people in communities have been able to make and have the whole world take notice. And uh, I think that, you know, these are moments, they come and go, uh, but it's, you try to run up the score when you have them, you know, because I remember, I'm old enough to remember when there was no conversation around criminal justice reform, uh, where there really was no conversation around a wrongful police use of force uh, and the number of people, disproportionately black people, um, and other people of color who are being killed uh, at the hands of law enforcement in circumstances where they should still be alive. That wasn't a conversation in the 90s. There was barely a conversation in the 2000s. And so I view this as a culmination of decades of work that people have done uh, to make this happen. And we have an opportunity to make some substantial change. Um, doesn't guarantee that we will. It doesn't guarantee that it won't be difficulties. Uh, but I think that at least it's possible, which is something that was much harder to think years ago. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And I will be, um, you know, flipping channels and stopping when I see you on MSNBC and Thank everywhere you. and reading your articles. And I invite others that are listening uh, to do the same and to check out the conversation that you had with the Westminster Town Hall. So I thank you. I'll let you get to your writing. I appreciate everything that you do on behalf of our collective communities. Thank you. That's Jelani Cobb and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. And another shout out to Target for sponsoring this episode. This conversation was in partnership with Westminster Town Hall Forum, calling on a special series on racial justice in this month of May. Tune in on Tuesdays in May and you can hear the speakers on Minnesota Public Radio. And if you're interested in sponsoring this conversation and looking for ways to do more, please contact me. You can find my information on our website at minneapolisfoundation.org or just simply give us a call and ask for Supak Keenitz. If you like this episode, you can tweet Shonda at Shonda S. Baker and let her know. And if you want to say thank you, please leave us a review and follow us wherever you get your podcast. Thank you to Sarah Gillen for making our artwork and copy for this episode. And thank you to Darlin Benjamin for coordinating and making this conversation happen. This is Sue Potkinitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.